Uh, one of our Pillar Church pastors, our Pillar Church of Okinawa, his name is John Ransom. Uh, he is well known for saying this phrase because he repeats it in nearly every meeting he's in. He reminds us often that the church is not like a family, but the church is a family. Uh, the church is not like a family. The church is a family. And John Ransom isn't the first to say this. If you read your New Testament and your Bibles closely, God has always taken a concern with who his people are and how they function and relate to one another. Some of the most prevalent language about your relationship with other Christians in this room throughout the New Testament is family language. Uh, why do you hear people say brother or sister? Why do we refer, refer to each other with such endearing terms? Well, it's because that's what the New Testament so often refers to us as. That's how it talks about how we're in relationship with one another. So I want us to take some time this morning to consider what does it mean to be a part of this family of God? And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 31 to 35. If you're using one of the Bibles around you, um, uh, please uh, find, it on, find the text on page 787. Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and, bro and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I pray that you would help us see what it exactly means that if we are called to be your children out of the world, into your family, what does it look like? What does it mean for our lives to be brothers and sisters of Jesus? What does it mean for us to be brothers and sisters of one another? God, we desperately need your help to see this. God, I pray also, God, that we would see just how significant and astounding these words of Jesus are. God, we need the Holy Spirit to, to help move out of the way the blind spots and the misunderstandings. And we desperately need to see clearly what it means to be a brother and sister of Jesus and one another. Father, I thank you that you have made a way that we can be family members through the role of adoption in our salvation. May we see that today as well. God, help us see how rich and wonderful Mark chapter 3, 31 to 35 are and what it means for our lives. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, if you are a note taker, um, the title of my sermon is simply The Family of God. And uh, these are going to be the main handlebars by which we move through the passage this morning. Uh, the first thing we're going to see, uh, really throughout Mark, one to three up to this point, but specifically here in three, three, 31 to 35, is that Jesus defines the family of God. And we're going to take a little aside to say, well, how does someone even get into the family of God? How is that possible? Uh, secondly, uh, we will see where Jesus uh, is telling us what the family of God actually does. And then finally, we're going to consider at the end of our time together why does this matter to us today? Why should it be? Because I'm going to make the bold claim that the family of God should have priority in your lives as Christians. But why is that? So first, 
let us, take, let us consider how Jesus defines the family of God. Uh, up to chapter 3 in Mark's gospel, Mark has put the nature of Jesus and his authority on full display. Uh, this, in, in the very beginning, Mark writes that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, that's just an easy phrase. We could all say it and repeat it together. But if we understand a little bit about the context in which Mark was writing into, well, what we'll see is that Jesus or Mark making such a bold claim about Jesus is a highly political and offensive statement to much of the context in which he wrote. Because what Mark is saying is that Jesus is the Son of God rather than the Roman emperors. Because in Mark, Mark is writing to a context of, to Roman Christians in Rome, probably near or just around Peter's death, some 20 to 30 years after Jesus has died. And this is in a context in which Rome has really dialed up the pressure and the persecution of Christians. Christians are being severely persecuted by Roman emperors like Nero. And you ask yourself maybe how severe was the persecution? Well, one of the things that Nero was famous for was crucifying a bunch of Christians and, uh, on crosses along the road that led into Rome as lampstands for the night. He lit them on fire. And additionally in this time in Christian history, 30, to 40, 30 years after Jesus' death, the, the Jews and the Christians were beginning to realize that there was not going to be this nice, close coexistence between Judaism and Christianity. Christianity was going to have to sever itself away from Ju- Judaism. So pressure, there was immense pressure upon Christians coming from both the Jews and the Romans. And the Jews didn't like the fact, uh, the pressure that they were giving uh, Christians was the fact that Gentiles were becoming followers of the Messiah without ever adhering to or being knowledgeable of the law of God. And, and the Jews just thought, how could this be? Okay. And then on the other side, the Romans believed that Christians were stubborn, even ignorant citizens of the empire, because they would not participate in any form of emperor worship. And then by the time of the writing of the Gospel of Mark, Rome has moved from proclaiming that Caesar was God after he had died. So Caesar would die, and then posthumously they would proclaim, well, Caesar was God. Well, they had moved away from that practice, and they had begun to deify Roman emperors while they were still living. And Nero was one of the first emperors to demand that he be treated as the Son of God, thereby becoming the self-proclaimed God-man deserving of worship and patronage from all the citizens of Rome. True Christians, though, true believers, were not going to succumb to this false claim that they had to obey the law of God or adhere to Jewish practices like circumcision to become followers of God. They knew there was another way. If we recall from our series in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus wasn't concerned about the external conformity to his ethic or the law of God. Rather, he was after the hearts of his followers. You see, if they believed his teaching and in him and as their only hope in life and death, then they would have true and abundant life and they would desire to reflect the way in which he called them to live. Namely, they would be distinctly holy as their Father in heaven was holy, rather than changing their behavior to conform to some religious, legalistic standard. And Christians were absolutely assured of the fact that they only had one Lord. That was the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Messiah, who had a rightful claim on their lives. He had forgiven their sins and called them to follow him and empowered them to do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't leave them alone. He gifted them with a helper. 
They had a new mission to proclaim Jesus' good news to the nations. And Jesus was worthy of their worship and adoration, along with their lives distinctly reflecting the character of God. Jesus was their God and their Lord and their King, not the Emperor of Rome. So Mark writes to demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. By starting his ministry, Jesus starts out in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. You could flip back over there with me. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. His followers, or his subjects in his new kingdom, were those who repented and believed in him and his good news. Good news that revealed hope and life, and flourishing are found only in Him and no other place. Life and purpose are not found in a strict adherence to the law, and they are definitely are not found in worshiping emperors of a temporary empire. Mark then writes of this divine authority that Jesus has throughout the rest of the, leading up to chapter 3. Uh, we, have, we see that Jesus has complete authority over the physical realm, even to the point to where he calls the disciples out of the things and jobs in which they were doing, tax collecting and fishing and doing their father's businesses, and he calls them to follow, follow him. He also has control over the physical realm, not merely to call people out of their jobs to follow him, but he also heals many from their physical ailments. And then he also shows himself to be the Lord and provider of Sabbath rest. True rest can be found in him. That's in Mark chapter 1, 2, and 3. And most stunningly, he has absolute authority over the spiritual realm in Mark chapters 1 to 3. Mark writes that Jesus casts out binds up, shuts the mouth of, and subdues Satan and his demons. And Mark will continue to demonstrate that Jesus has all authority until the first third of Mark is completed in Mark 8, verse 31. And then, because Jesus has all of this authority, not only can he call people out to be his family members, but he is worthy to be followed. He takes the, the, the disciples from Uh, Galilee all the way into Jerusalem up until Mark chapter 10 verse 52 and finally he leads them to his crucifixion in Mark chapter 15 and subsequent resurrection here in verse in chapter 3 31 to 35 Jesus with all of his good and divine authority that he has been using to set all the wrongs to right He defines exactly who his brothers and sisters are, who are the family of God. One thing that's unfortunate here is that Jesus' true family who show up outside of this house that he's in, teaching in his hometown, his true family shows up and they have fallen in with the lot of the Pharisees and the Herodians and the gossip network of the time. Turn back with me to chapter 3, verse 6. What does it say about his family there? Uh, well, it says this about the Pharisees first in 3, 6. It says that they went out immediately. This was after Jesus had healed someone on the Sabbath. They went out and immediately held a council with the Herodians against him to destroy him. They were not happy with this new ministry and this new authority that Jesus was expressing to establish his kingdom on earth and and turn all the wrongs to right. And then his family shows up or hears about what's going on in Jesus's ministry. And in 321, and when his family had heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. Jesus is absolutely crazy. We've got to rein him in. The Pharisees believed that Jesus was possessed by a demon in verse 30. For they were saying he's un- he has an unclean spirit. His mothers and 
brothers had dropped by then to take Jesus back home and give him a good tongue lashing and likely threaten him to get his act together and submit to their authority as his mother and brothers and sisters or at least submit to the religious authorities of the day. The Pharisees here were seeking to discredit and dishonor Jesus in order to put him under his authority. His family was seeking to get him under their authority because they, were, they, they didn't want their name dishonored in the culture as, they, as it seemingly looked like one of their family members had gone rogue and started doing some pretty amazing, crazy things in the world. But Jesus... Jesus Christ had not come to live under the authority of misguided religious leaders or confused family members. Jesus was the king of a new of the kingdom of God that was now at hand. And he is revealing to the world that he is the only one who is in authority and is doing the will of God. And he has authority to heal. He has authority to shut the mouths of demons and Satan, bind up Satan. And he has the authority to define exactly who his true followers or his true family is. And amazingly, Jesus does this in public. Look at verse 32. What does it say? And a crowd was sitting around him. So so Jesus is sitting in a house full of people to the point to where his his mother and his brothers and sisters can't even make their way into the house. And he's teaching them and, and he publicly redefines the family. This would have been one of the most culturally scandalous things that he could have possibly done. Because family bonds, especially family bonds between siblings, were the most significant bonds that existed in the first century. And in in Palestine today, it is still true that family bonds are the most significant bonds between individuals, specifically bonds between the in the relationship between a brother and his brothers and a brother and his sisters. One example of this, you guys remember Herod, uh, the, the Tetrarch who was over uh, the, the area of Jerusalem and Israel at the time of Jesus' birth? Well, well, Herod was married to a woman that he really did love. It, it wasn't just a contractual obligation to promote the, the welfare of the family, which most marriages were, and so, but, but Herod actually loved his wife. But at some point in the relationship between Herod and his wife, his sister, Herod's sister, got mad at her sister-in-law. And she couldn't cover it up anymore. And so she went to Herod, her brother, and said, Look, I'm really not happy with what your, sis- what your wife is doing. I don't want her around anymore. Now, we know from Herod killing a bunch of two-year-old children and younger, he wasn't the most stable person in the world. However, he did, he, his family bond to his sister was so strong that the marital love that he had with his wife would not overcome it, and he ended up killing his wife. That's how strong family-sibling bonds were in the, in the first century. So as Jesus redefines the family to be the brothers and sisters who are no longer related by blood, the blood of their father that had been passed down to them, but, but the family of God is, is a family who is related by doing the will of God. And since Jesus is defining the family as a group of brothers and sisters, he reveals that this new family group will be the most significant group in the life of his followers. So so Jesus takes his followers 
out of their familial relationships in which they would have lived or died for their brothers and done nearly anything for their sisters. And he says, that's no longer the people in whom you're related to. You are in a relationship now with those who do my will. These are my brothers and sisters. This is my family. In Jesus' day and time, the group, the group, the family group was the most significant group that one could belong to. It wasn't the individual as the most important. The family was the most important group. And the most important family bond was that between siblings. And not only was the family relationship about honoring your sibling, but you made choices in your life based on how it affected the family rather than just yourself in the first century. The impact of your choice on the group was much higher import, of much higher importance and consequence than what your choice meant for you. Now, friends, if we're honest with ourselves, we live in one of the most radically individualistic ages of our of the of the of history. And one of the ways that this shows up most often is when we make decisions, often the primary reason that we do so is for our own happiness or our own benefit. We tend not to be all that concerned about what our brothers and sisters think, let alone our actual family. But oftentimes we make decisions not even considering or submitting them to the family of God. That, that doesn't mean you have to bring up every life decision you're going to make before the, before the membership of the church in a membership meeting. That's not what I'm advocating for. But, but how often are you seeking the counsel and wisdom of your brothers and sisters sitting around you? Fellow Christians who are doing life together, who are doing the will of God with you, how often are you submitting those decisions to them? You see, because we are in such a radically individualistic society and time, our own happiness and status are typically the most central factors in whether we take a new job, whether we move to a new city, even when we decide who we will marry, or make other significant life decisions. Usually it is us, our happiness, and our own status that is central to that decision. Brothers and sisters, friends, if you call yourself a Christian, and especially if you are a member of this church, I encourage you to consider more and more input from your brothers and sisters around you when making decisions. Also consider how your decisions and choices actually impact the bond of unity and peace that you have among one another as the family of God. How, how radically different, how much more loving and considerate would we be of one another if we were actually living in such family relationship with one another? Because, brothers and sisters, I believe that if we were to grasp just how significant the relationship is that exists between us as brothers and sisters, as it was in Jesus' day, then we will find it pleasing and honoring and joyful to reflect God's character to one another and the world. And when we grasp the significance of this for the significance of what Jesus is saying here about the family of God and, our, that, that, and the relationships that exist within that family, then I believe that we're going to be way more prepared and way more readily to obey Jesus' commands. Commands like this, like we heard in the Sermon on the Mount. Being reconciled to your brother or sister before you make an offering to God. Are any of your relationships strained between brothers and sisters? 
Jesus says, don't even make an offering. Go and mend and bond and heal those relationships. Reconcile with one another. We'll be more humbly ready to admit our fault and our failings with one another. We will be more quick to give up our freedoms for Christ's sake and the, and the sake of our brothers and sisters. How often do you, when you invite people into your house, do you ask them, hey, hey are there any dietary restrictions? Uh, yes, we're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols is what Paul says. But Paul also says that he would gladly give up that right if it would mean that my brother or sister would not stumble and sin. I think also if we understand the significance of our bonds as brothers and sisters, living by our church membership covenant and actually knowing what it says as we make promises to one another and what it requires of us will actually be a joyful thing to live out with one another. But when's the last time in a discipleship meetup that you talked about our church covenant with one another? When's the last time you held each other accountable to the things that you've made promises about through that covenant? Brothers and sisters, we are to honor one another in keeping our promises. And I think most of all, most of all, especially living in a radically individualistic world where we prize ourselves more than we prize one another, if we truly understand what Jesus is doing in making us his brothers and sisters, then we will be eager, as Paul writes in Ephesians, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as we live as brothers and sisters of Christ. So Jesus uses his good authority to define the family of God. But, but we need to think about this for a second. What is Jesus really saying when he says, look back with me, 30, verse 35, Mark 30, 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What, what does Jesus really mean here? Well, this is where I want us to look at how God actually builds his family in the New Testament. And he does it, he builds his family through the beautiful act of adoption, of adoption. You see, Jesus says here that those who are his newly defined families, family members, are those who do something, okay? That primarily they do the will of God on itself if we've listened to other things that jesus has said and and i would say please if you missed last week's sermon by doug it is not what we do that brings us in to the family of god what jesus is saying seems counterintuitive to the gospel that you've heard from this pulpit and you will hear from me in just a few minutes it seems counterintuitive to the rest of the new testament and Jesus is telling, or we need to ask, is Jesus telling us that his gospel is a gospel of works by which we earn God's favor or get into God's family by merely just doing something? I think we need to take what Jesus says and plop it down in the context of all of what has been written to this point. Recall that Jesus has called people to do what? Repent and believe in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. And those who repent and believe, what do they do? They follow him. Okay? And they live by what he teaches. He's not merely stating that if we just do the will of God, then we will be the family members of God. And one question that some of you may have, because you're very astute listeners, is, well, what is the will of God, Thomas? Pump the brakes. We'll get there in just a minute. I'm going to take some time to talk about what the will of God is, so it's no longer a mystery. But for now, we need to know that we do not do anything. Hear me clearly. We do not do anything to appease God to be considered or counted as his children. If being a family member of God's family were merely about doing something, 
then that would be contrary to all of Scripture, friends. God is not one who could simply be appeased by someone who really has their life together and does all the right things. He is not that kind of God. You see, I can change brake pads. I can even replace oil filters and add windshield wiper fluid and brake fluid when necessary and antifreeze to my car. But that doesn't make me an ASE certified mechanic, does it? No. You see, just doing or obeying God's law doesn't make us God's children. If anything, if we attempt to, make, to, to just do the law, what we'll realize is that it makes, us less, it makes it less possible that God would want to have anything to do with us than make us his children. You, you see, we, we see throughout the Bible that, in fact, many Jews did the law meaning that they were strict adherents to the law. But doing the law didn't make them the children of God. Even being born in the right family, oh Jesus, by the way, we are children of Abraham, we are of that line, didn't make them the family of God. Because, friends, if doing something to earn or keep God's favor were possible, then two things would be true. We would upend grace. We would completely turn grace over. Simply put, friends, God's grace is His unmerited favor upon sinners who are completely unable to earn His favor. You see, if grace is not necessary, then Jesus' work is not necessary. The second thing that would be true is as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, we would be tempted, no, we wouldn't be tempted, we would actually boast before God with our woefully prideful hearts. We would tell God how good we are if it were left up to us, if it were left up to us just doing the right things. We would want to recount all the wonderful ways in which we worked or did things to earn his favor and subsequently his salvation. But friends, that is untrue. God is not one to be appeased by your works and doing things. So, if we cannot become the children of God by doing things, then how is it that we can become the family of God? How is it that you and I can be brothers and sisters? Well, what we learn from the rest of the New Testament is that we are not by nature children of God, contrary to popular belief. They're not all children of God out there. There's likely not all children of God in here. The the scriptures reveal to us, we are not children of God, but we are children of the devil. We are worthy of God's wrath. The only way to become a true family member of God then is for God to take you and adopt you from your sinful state and bring you into his family. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for, what? Adoption to Himself as sons and subsequently daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, 
If you have repented and believed in Jesus, if you are a follower, if you are a true disciple of the true King, then there was a time in your life when you were not a member of the family of God. And if you are not a Christian here today, you are like the rest of humanity. You're dead in your trespasses and sin. And you must believe in Jesus. And you must repent of your sin. You're not a child of God if those things are not true of you. But God, but God, friends, is rich in mercy and grace. And He is set out from the fall of humanity to reconcile sinful people to Himself. And He does this through the act of adoption. You see, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, all of humanity has been cut off and alienated from God without any means in and of themselves to restore the relationship. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can say. There is no amount of treasure you can amass in your life to appease the God of heaven and reconcile yourself to Him. And even though we try various ways and various means to get back into relationship with God, we try a little harder, we do a little more, we think He's going to have a little bit of favor on us, maybe this time because I did this, He'll answer my prayer. We think we can restore ourselves back to God, but when we do those things, friends, we perpetuate sin rather than inclining ourselves towards God. We are, so we are in a desperate and lonely situation. We are orphaned from the Father who created us from our mother's womb. And we have a ruler that actually doesn't want our flourishing, but wants us to be in a dreadful, depressed, and dejected state, continuing our natural rebellion against God and our Creator. So what does God do? He says, I see you in your desperate, dreadful, depressed state, lonely, orphaned, and I have made a way for you through my son that you might be adopted and called my sons and my daughters. And friends, if you have not been adopted into the family of God, today can be the day of your adoption. Today can be the day in which you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and death. And you are brought into the family of God and made my brother or made my sister in Christ Jesus. That is possible. And if you are a Christian and you are truly God's child, then we, by His divine mercy, are adopted as His sons and daughters. We are made His family members. We are made family members with one another. We have been, uh, we have been given a heavenly inheritance, a divine responsibility as recipients of every blessing. Remember, what did Paul say? God doesn't hold back anything. What does he say? Every spiritual blessing has been granted to you in the heavenly places. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are adopted as the son or daughter of God, it's all yours. Heaven's gates are open to you. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you have been brought into one of the most significant relationships in all of Scripture. You are a son. You are a daughter of the Most High King of heaven and earth. So Jesus has defined the family. And being a part of that family is not merely done by something that we, or it happens by something we do. It comes through adoption as a son and daughters. But 
As we asked earlier, what is the will of God? What does it mean to do God's will if we are members of this new family? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I would venture to say, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian sitting here today, you have likely asked this question in some form or another. What must I do to know or find out God's will? Specifically, we ask, what must I know or do to find out God's will for my life? Notice how individualized we make that question. We've desperately wanted to know, God, what is it that is your will for me? And for some reason, we believe that God's will is very, very mysterious. It's lost, and it needs us to go and find it. And we desperately need God's help to do that, too. Or every three to five years, we find ourselves at a crossroads, a time of making a big life decision, and we think, we must determine what is God's will for my life. Well, friends, I have some really, really good news for you. God's will is no mystery. Look with me. I encourage you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 if you have a Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. First Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 3. For this is the will of God. So you, if you've been looking for the will of God, get your pen out and get ready to underline the next two words. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. I'm going to keep reading. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions and lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us from impurity, but in holiness therefore whoever disregards this disregards not man but god who gives his holy spirit to you friends god's will for you is your sanctification well what is sanctification sanctification is being set apart for god to do his purposes. Sanctification is being set apart for God to do his purposes. Now, being set apart for God happens when we are born again, when we repent and believe, when God adopts us. And when he does that, he makes us holy. We then live for God to accomplish His purposes as His holy or set-apart people. Remember, we read earlier from Romans chapter 6. I want to recall those verses. Romans chapter 6, 1 to 7. What shall we say then? This is after people have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. They've received the grace of God, forgiven of their sins, and and, and, and forgiveness is grace to God, or is the grace of God for sinners? And the, the, the uh, argument that Paul writes about, he says, well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live to it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried for, therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, Just as Christ was raised from the dead 
by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we no longer are no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin if you are a christian you call yourself a christian you know yourself to be a family member of the family of god do you know that you are dead to sin You are set apart and holy. You are being sanctified. Sin no longer has to rule in your mortal body because you have been crucified with Christ. You've been adopted into the family of God. And we read earlier that God in in Thessalonians, that God has given us his spirit. This is not just an individual project whereby you got to go out and figure it out all by yourself now. He's gifted you with the Holy Spirit. To be sanctified. And there are actually three different aspects or components to sanctification. There there is positional sanctification. There's progressive sanctification. And then there is ultimate sanctification. Let's go through those. Positional sanctification. Positional sanctification is what we call, or is an aspect of what we refer to as justification. We have been made holy. You were forgiven of your sins. You were wiped clean by God, cleansed with hyssop, like we said earlier, and God has deposited into you righteousness and holiness, and you are counted righteous or holy before Him. That is your positional sanctification. Your progressive sanctification is, if we become Christians, we all know, that we continue to fight and battle with sin. Why is it, Thomas? Many of you have sat in my office or sat at a coffee shop with me or sat across from me at my house and said, why is it, Thomas, that I still am plagued with this sin? Although God has given you a new heart, forgiven you and made you holy, you have a wretched flesh that needs to be sanctified. And from the inside out, the Spirit is at war with your flesh to make you more and more like Jesus. So you progress from a state of becoming less like Jesus to a state of becoming more like Jesus. You see maturity in your life. So you are positionally sanctified. You are, progr- you are being progressively sanctified. And then the one thing that we are all waiting for is our ultimate sanctification where we are raised from the dead, given new resurrected bodies that will last for eternity, and we enter into a glorified state. We will receive these bodies without sin, they will have, and sin will have no power over us, and we will be unable to sin. Brothers and sisters, do you not long for the day that you are unable to sin? Oh, Jesus, come quickly. And if you're a Christian, right now you are both in positional and progressive sanctification. You are seen as completely holy before the God because of your salvation and your justification, and you are also in the process of being made more and more like Jesus. And although this is true of you individually, we do not progress in holiness all alone. We are a family, friends. We are to participate in one another's sanctification. We are to spur one another on to love and good deeds. I I would encourage you to take some time this, this week and, and spend time in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. And consider, just consider from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 10, the implications of this text on your life, not as an individual child of God, but as a family member 
of Pillar Church of Washington, D.C. So why does all this matter? Why, why, does, why does Jesus redefine the family here? Why, why is it so important to us for us to know the will of God to be sanctified, to be more and more like Jesus? It matters, friends, because you're all sitting here on the Lord's day. Something has radically changed in your life to bring you into this building this day. And that is important. Because as children of God, we submit to doing God's will for us to be sanctified. We're adopted members of the family. So doing, the God, doing God's will is not an individual isolated work. We're here doing this together. Did you not sing wonderful songs of truth to one another and to God a few moments ago? Do we not at times remind... Don't we regularly gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper together and claim the fact that Jesus, in Jesus' death is the only place in which we find our hope? Friends, we are not islands in the middle of the ocean that are somehow uh, begin to grow vegetation and develop into a small, thriving ecosystem. Rather, our participation with the Holy Spirit in sanctification is a family project. We work together with one another to remain set apart for holiness and the purposes of God to make Jesus known throughout the world. We need the Holy Spirit as our helper to point sin out to us. We, we are woefully blind. We need our brothers and sisters around us so that we might confess our sins to one another, not lying to ourselves, believing that we're not sinners. And we need our brothers and sisters around us to see sin in us and call it out, drag it out into the light and kill our sinful desires, our sinful choices, and our selfish decisions. So, we don't neglect the regular family gatherings or what we call a service on the Lord's Day. I, I just simply want to ask, how is your attendance to services? Do you notice someone who's absent? Have you been here every other Sunday? Once a month? Our, our family gathers each and every week. And we must prioritize this time because it is where we confess truth to, to one another as we sing and celebrate the ordinances. We also sit under the regular preaching and teaching of God's Word so that our family is prepared for the work of the ministry that God has purposed us to do here in D.C. and around the world. You, right now, are being conformed, whether you feel it or not. Whether you sense it or not, you are being conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. You are being transformed and prepared for the work of ministry. As you sit under the teaching of God's word and it has its effect by the power of the spirit in your lives and in your relationships with one another. Friends, I also want to remind you that we gather quarterly as members of the church to discuss and share the details of our, of our family and what God is up to in our family, to provide uh, updates on our budget, to bring in new family members, to handle uh, other business, or handle other business that our pastors see as pressing and in need of a family discussion. Friends, when was the last membership meeting that you attended? We have scheduled our next membership meeting for September 11th. I should see a bunch of phones pulled out, hitting the calendar button. September the 11th, following the service, we have a membership meeting. I highly recommend that you go ahead and plan to be there. Attending regular family gatherings as a priority in your life 
as a member of this church is what I would like to call bending your life around the life of the church. Bending your life around the life of the church. The church is not a place meant to cater to your individual needs, your wants, and your desires. The church is a family where brothers and sisters prioritize being around one another for their sanctification. Do you, friend, do you bend your life around the family life of the church Or are you asking the family to bend its life around you while you make decisions and aim to try to be sanctified all by yourself? Another way outside of family relationships or family gatherings, a way in which we relate to one another and grow in holiness and are sanctified is in one-on-one discipleship. And I would say outside of our family gatherings where we collectively confess truth and center the teaching of God's word together and celebrate the things that Christ has done for us, one-on-one discipleship is one of the most sanctifying relationships that you can be in. Discipleship is helping people become more like Jesus as you follow Jesus yourself. Discipleship and sanctification go hand in hand. Because it's in discipleship that you are encouraged and challenged and edified to become more like Jesus in a personal one-on-one or one-on-two setting. It's where you can really bring out all the ugliness and still be loved by your brothers and sisters still be loved by the children of God and really work towards killing sin and being more like Jesus. If you're wanting to get into a one-on-one discipleship relationship, I'd encourage you to go to PillarDC.com backslash discipleship, complete a stages assessment, and I'll be glad to help you get into a a one-on-one discipleship relationship. And for those of you who are interested in discipling others, we have regular discipleship training meetings. I would encourage you to be a part of those as well when we we put them on the calendar. Again, bending your life around the life of the church. Another way in which you can be or you can grow in your sanctification is participating in small groups. We made a big call for small groups. Many of you received emails about signing up for small groups. In this regular meeting, we provide an environment where you can grow in your Christ-likeness with a small group of believers who are also fighting for their own Christ-likeness and yours. In small groups, you will have the opportunity to spend time with other Christians to study God's Word, to pray for one another, and serve as a group together in the city. If you've not signed up for a group, then go to PillarDC.com backslash groups and sign up for a group. We'd love for you to be involved in one of our small groups coming up this, this semester in the fall, starting in August. So friends, may I submit to you that maybe, just maybe, that you're not seeing the growth and maturity and Christ-likeness that you desire in your life because you're trying to be sanctified like a teeny tiny island out in the ocean to develop a healthy ecosystem rather than submitting yourself to the family of God and participating in the family project of sanctification. So Christ has defined the family. We are adopted to be brought into that family. And the family of God does the will of God, which the will of God is your sanctification. And we must not, we must not, as the family members of God, forsake the priority of the family gatherings of God, especially as the members of this church. So I want to call the worship team up. We're going to close here in a final song. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to pray. Well, Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time that we've had in your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ calling us to be his brothers and sisters. 
Oh, God, we desperately need your help. We need one another's help. We need the Holy Spirit at work in us to be sanctified. We long to be more like our Savior Jesus. God, help us be a people who are the family of God that bend our lives around this family project of sanctification. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.